Precision medicine, is it hype or help, fact or fiction? Welcome to Precision Insight. This is a podcast series where the most influential thought leaders and innovators in healthcare sit with me to chat about the latest technologies and tools of precision medicine. What is coming up in the near future? If you want to know more about this incredibly fast-moving field of research and development, stay tuned. Sue, first of all, thank you very much for being with us. And perhaps you'd just like to tell people a little bit about yourself and how you got to here. Okay. So I'm Sue Paul. I've been a pharmacist for over 20 years. And I kept seeing such a gap in patients and medications and their understanding of medications and the settings that I was in I never really felt like I had the time to properly take care of them or educate them either I was too busy filling and checking prescriptions or I was in the hospital working on a tight time frame and so I created a business called Synergy Consulting and I get to work in physicians offices or in patients homes and help them manage their medications especially after a transition of care. But in the physician's office, they're primarily utilizing my skills to manage the chronic disease states that the patient has in their medication. And then I have two other businesses. The second one is called Metapreneurs, and it's an annual conference for pharmacy entrepreneurs. And we've had two successful conferences, and we're working on our third, which will take place in April 2020. Fantastic. Yes. It brings everybody together and helps them break down barriers to be able to provide better care for patients. Fantastic. And the third one? Is PGX 101. And so we incorporated pharmacogenomics into the physician's office where I get to work and realized not enough pharmacists or healthcare providers knew about pharmacogenomics and the science behind it. And I certainly didn't want to start another business. However, it did feel like the right thing to do. So we go around and it's 20 hours of continuing education and we train pharmacists and other healthcare providers. Superb. You know, you've touched on a few things there that I think are actually critical to the next 30 or 40 years of of therapeutics. So we need education. We need to be sharing our experiences as groups interested in providing complex care and we need to have one-to-one relationships with patients either in their home which I think is fantastic or in offices so I think you've touched on three things that are really essential to the future of therapeutics and 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 improving healthcare and congratulations on doing that. I mean, I think it sounds like you're spearheading this a little bit because from my reading, there aren't many people who understand the implications of pharmacogenetics in therapeutics. And you've already said that we need people to help patients navigate uh, the complexity of normal medications without pharmacogenetics. And now we're adding another layer of complexity. Do you see that as actually a threat? As what is a threat? The pharmacogenetics is a threat to the complexity. You know, I've got so much going on trying to organize this patient with five conditions and they're on 15 drugs. And now I need to add something called pharmacogenetic. I sort of throw up my hands. Do you find that sort of response when you're talking to people? I haven't, but what I feel like is lacking out there is the implementation and properly implementing. There's several different uh, companies that do offer the trainings. I feel the benefit of what we're doing is we're actually using the trainings and we help people to learn how to implement it because I think those are the barriers. Yes. I kind of look at pharmacogenomics and I'd love to hear your feedback as the potassium level. Or, or an INR or a blood pressure. 
Yeah, I do the same. I actually talk about it as a complex liver function test. Yeah. Because, I mean, unfortunately, it's not as simple as a liver function test. It's got a lot more complexity within it yeah. uh, in the test itself and the interpretation. But absolutely, this is just a, another factor that needs to be taken into account when you're identifying medication options for a patient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm strongly persuaded that the evidence is as strong, if not stronger, for pharmacogenetics and as liver, as potassium, as the other things you mentioned. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But it comes back to this complexity a little bit and, and sort of going to your experience with working with clinics. How do they actually physically do it? How is it organized that you can help them provide the care to their patients? What, what actually happens? What we do in our practice is the physician will identify a patient who is may not be responding to drugs or is unwilling to take medications but desperately needs them, maybe some mental health issue going on. And so they'll schedule them with me or one of our behavioral health coaches who will do the swab. And then we'll schedule the patient for follow-up in a week or two when the report is back and go over it. I saw two patients last week who did have mental health issues. They were going through medication-assisted treatment for uh, substance use disorder. Yep. And so we were trying to get them on the correct medicine so that they can handle their mental health challenges on their road to recovery. And so I actually got to go through the report with the patient and then between the patient and I, we decided what medications might work best depending on what the patient's symptoms were. And then I presented that to the physician and she said, go ahead and send the orders in. Fantastic. And that's kind of how it works yeah. in our clinic. How long do you think it takes to go through that sort of information with a patient? 15 minutes. If you have a good report with the current FDA involvement that started August 1st, where taking medications off the report, I need to go through a little bit more thoroughly prior to the office visit. Yeah. When the medications are on the report, it's a lot quicker. Yeah, absolutely. And so when you get a report, what sort of things are on the report? Because I think many listeners may not have actually seen a pharmacogenetic report. What's the language that you see on the report? Because we know what a liver function looks like and a renal function. What's it look like when it comes in as a PGX report? It's primarily depending on how many SNPs you're testing for, the single nucleotide polymorphisms or alleles. It depends on how many you're testing for, but it tells us the cytochrome P450 variants or issues where they may not be metabolizing the medicine well or breaking it down as well as they should. Yeah. So generally, I think we see, I mean, and our report is the same, but they will translate those alleles generally into a drug metabolism. So they're either a poor metabolizer, normal metabolizer, ultra metabolizer, that sort of thing. And so that's generally what we see in the report. And then we have to convert that to, do we increase the dose or lower the dose of the medication? Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're doing that, do you actually discuss the adverse events, uh, potential adverse events of drugs with patients as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And where do you find that information? Because I think that's something that we all struggle a little bit is, you know, the the probability of maybe serotonin syndrome or drowsiness or or whatever it may be. What's your favorite source for that sort of information? For really quick information, I'll go to Medscape. 
Yep. Just because it's not as complicated. If I need to dive a little bit further, I'll go to the drug label. Fantastic. Yeah. So, I mean, the drug monograph obviously is the place where we would go as well. But that sort of thing all takes time. So presumably as you build up your experience of maybe two or 300 drugs, you actually know the side effects and so are able to share them with the patients. Is that right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Just as when you started out, you were looking for the parameters for the potassium level, but now you know it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so in your experience with the complexity of care and more people with chronic conditions, do you see this sort of pharmacy assist process being part of normal care as we move forward? Absolutely. I mean, that's my dream to have pharmacists and physicians offices as a team along with the patient to get better outcomes. So in the future, might we actually see pharmacists actually not have a pharmacist? Uh, but have a technician and the pharmacist actually be in the clinic. Absolutely. And I also think there will still be retail pharmacies Yeah. because it's a product where the patient will come to get the product, however, the service involved, and that'll be all done by the technicians or through technology. And then the pharmacist will have an office where you go in and you go over all the medications and check to make sure that they're all necessary and check for interactions and that type of thing. And when you're talking with the patients, are there tools that you're using or maybe you describe about that patient that you were talking about, how you identify what outcomes the patient's actually interested in? I use a lot of visual. I have the benefit of working in a lower health literacy environment. And so I've really had to simplify things. So I'll take the water faucet and I'll turn it on a nice stream and then I'll push it up the full blast and say, this is where your blood pressure is. So I use a lot of visuals. I do it with diabetes and things like that because sometimes they don't understand why do I have to take medicine? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're not ill. I feel fine. Yeah. Why should I take it? Yeah. And so when you're doing that sort of engagement process, are there any aha moments with patients? Yeah. I do use one where I use um, tomato paste and vinegar to show the thickness of their blood depending on their blood glucose. And they can tell the viscosity, and, but they'll come back to the physician and say, I think my blood kind of looks like ketchup today, doctor. <laughs> I've been eating too many cookies or whatever. So yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah. And so you're building a rapport with the patient as well as the physician's rapport and connection with the patient. Is that right? Yes. So this is not just science. This is very much a a human reaction and interaction. Relationships. Yes. Yeah. And how do you balance that? I mean, a lot of people are saying, no pharmacogenetics, it's more science, taking away the, the relationship part of the therapeutic alliance, if you like. Do you see that happening? Do you see uh, pharmacogenetics as a bit of a threat or do you just see it in a different way? Oh, totally different way. I think it builds trust. The patient I had this week, when she saw a lot of her medications that she has failed in the past in the red zone, and that she's like, okay, now I get why I wasn't able to take those medicines. You're putting me on medicine that should play better with my genes. And yeah, it builds trust. Yeah. And going forward, I mean, people also are a bit worried about the cost of these tests. When you apply the results of these tests, do you have examples of where you've seen benefit? Yes. So many to be able to break it down. It's the most rewarding thing. Uh, I think probably one of our most successful ones was uh, she had been addicted to opioids 
we got her on the right medicines and she's been able to come off her medication assisted therapy suboxone which is you don't see that very often you but don't. because the mental health issues were properly treated with the correct medicine yeah she was able to get healthy. that's fantastic i mean then those those stories have so much weight and then we've got the cost effectiveness data and everything else out there that's coming along now as, as pharmacogenetics is starting to become a standard of therapy yeah yes absolutely and so maybe moving just slightly to the education part, I would say, you know, probably well, well over the majority of clinicians and, and maybe half pharmacists are not really au fait with what pharmacogenetics is. How do you see us challenging that and trying to educate people about the benefits? Um, I do think offering training is helpful. And I did hear of one professor last week where he is testing all of his first year pharmacy students before they ever even get any drug information. And then that stays with them throughout their pharmacy educational career. That's fantastic. Isn't that fantastic? Yeah, I mean, we've had discussions a little bit here about students having that. I think one of the anxieties is that it might predict disease, that here is a genetic test. So I think that it's useful to point out that not all pharmacogenetic panels, but most pharmacogenetic panels have no predictive ability whatsoever. They're just mm -hmm. about the drugs. Isn't that correct? Exactly. That's what yeah. I've seen. Yeah. So in that sense, educating by experience is probably a very positive way of doing things. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And then in terms of bringing together people who are using pharmacogenetics, you've got this meeting that's happening. Ed, do you want to talk a little bit more about how that works? The Metapreneurs Conference that yeah. we have. And it's not tailored toward pharmacogenomics. It's tailored toward healthcare providers who are trying to do things differently because the system is broken, at least here in America. But just to be able to break down some of the barriers people are running into and then building a network of people that you can go to when you are having issues. That, that sort of meeting, yes, I mean, I asked you a little bit about where you get your evidence and you're talking about Medscape and other places. Is that a meeting where people can share resources of where they found really useful information for helping patients? It certainly could be. I don't know that we've specifically addressed that. Yeah. yeah, it certainly could be. And when we're talking about pharmacogenetics, is there a place that you would tend to go to for your information? The CPIC guidelines. You want to talk a little bit more about what CPIC is and how it works? So the Clinical Pharmacogenomic Consortium is <laughs> close enough. <laughs> They do a lot of this information and try and gather it and come up with evidence-based ratings and scalings from what they're seeing. I consider them the go-to place to get my evidence for pharmacogenomics. Yeah, absolutely the same for us as well. And I think it's useful for people who may not have heard much about pharmacogenetics to know that there is this international consortium that is putting all the evidence together from around the world and is a clearinghouse and there's no commercial interest at all. And so it's fantastic for those who want to use pharmacogenetics to have this. I look at it as the equivalent of a Cochrane library, but for mm -hmm. pharmacogenetics. So mm -hmm. It's a place where you can get appraised evidence and it's put into language that is quite easy for us as clinicians to use straight away. So a level of evidence and then a, a recommendation about dosage. So certainly it's something that I would 
recommend listeners to look up if they've not actually heard about it. Because I think it's an indication that pharmacogenetics has moved from just a science and a few people to an international body and groups around the world taking this information and sharing it with others. Mm-hmm. What are your doctors that you work with? I mean, are they getting involved in, in interpreting the pharmacogenetics as well? As they, are they learning about this at the same time as you're implementing it? Absolutely. So we were able to test all of our providers so that they could see what information that the patients get back. And I think that probably was one of the best ways for them to see how this works. And with some of the tests that we use, we don't use all the same lab. It doesn't have the drugs on there. And so I've been interpreting more and more tests. And it's cute because they will try to interpret it. <laughs> and, and sometimes it's right and sometimes it's wrong, depending. You know what? I think that's the same as renal and liver and potassium. I think that it is interesting. And with renal, you can go to two or three sources of evidence and they'll have different recommendations. They'll they'll generally say lower the dose, but how much of a lower dose and exactly how you should do it differs. And I think that's what we're seeing here with pharmacogenetics and interpretation is the nuances are there. Probably everyone would agree lower dose or higher dose, depending on what drug and what pharmacogenetic variant, but we're still learning how much to reduce the dose or how much to increase the dose. I don't know if they'll ever have that just because of all the other information that plays into it, the epigenetics, the other drugs that they're on, the other health issues, their diet, all that type of thing. Absolutely. I mean, we are talking about big data here and then having a guideline for each individual person rather than each disease because, and you're right. I mean, we do struggle when you've got a renal problem that's saying reduce the dose and you've got a pharmacogenetic problem, well, variant that says reduce the dose. So now you've got two indications for a reduced dose. How much do you reduce the dose by? And generally what we do is move on to another drug. (laughs) You know, if you've got that much uncertainty, and I think this is where we've really started to understand what this means, is if the pharmacogenetics and everything else is is producing too much uncertainty in that drug, if there's another option, then think about that other option. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Yeah. And so spending a lot of time on one drug when actually you're probably not going to use it because you're trying to work out, you know, okay, renal, liver, whatever, think about another drug. And that's a very useful message to the pharmacists and clinicians looking after patients, that there are multiple options. And having that testing and the results is so important. I had a patient who was on an antidepressant that typically doesn't cause weight gain, and she gained 12 pounds in two months. And so I said, are you upset that we did the testing? And she said, no, there's four other medications that I can try. She's like, this helped my depression. I just didn't care for the side effect. Yeah. And I think that goes back to this shared decision-making with patients. I also think that pharmacogenetics is a trigger for the way we're starting to share information with patients, that exactly that point, that there are four or five medications and sometimes many, many more for an individual to look at for a particular condition. And having systems, software applications that can show them that information and then they can make informed choices. I mean, everyone has been talking about shared decision-making for maybe 20 years. I think actually pharmacogenetics may be a trigger for really enabling that. I agree, definitely. Mm -hmm. 
Well, it's fun to hear your enthusiasm for this and great to hear your experiences and the patient stories. So thank you very much for your time. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with listeners at this stage? Look into it if you can. We have lots of resources on our website, pgx101.com, free resources for you to get started. And then, you know, if our training doesn't work out for you, I'm happy to offer other trainings, but I love what Genexus is doing and that how they are trying to bring all this together in a simpler format to be able to assist providers to help patients to get better outcomes. Thanks very much, Suze. Thank you again for your time. This has been fantastic. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to others.